Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. An honest, authentic reaction is priceless. It's fucking magic. Laughter is accidental. So for people who have mastered it to get on stage and make that happen to a room full of people is, is fucking priceless. And people, it, cures, it, it creates endorphins, which, cures, which helps cure cancer, which changes your mood. You can have a sh- I've had people so many times and go, dude, I had a shitty day. Thank you. Comics do something different. You know, and I believe, I seriously believe that. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's 2017, and I am really, really happy this podcast is going to shake you up, and it's going to blow you away because I'm sitting across from Christopher Titus, who I consider to be the closest comedian to the late George Carlin working today and I don't say that lightly and I think if there was only one other comic I would put in that category that's working today probably Jim Jeffries so you're in for a real treat and so without further ado I'd like to introduce my guest so get some popcorn get some no dose fall asleep and set the alarm for four minutes from now (laughs) he was once called TV's most original comic voice since Seinfeld Christopher Titus is known for comedy that's part rant part confession part therapy in my opinion part commencement address (laughs) always funny (laughs) Titus was born in Castro Valley, California in 1964. His parents divorced when he was a young child, and he was raised largely by his father, Ken. You gotta put the age? You gotta put my age? It's show business. Don't put my age. I will be commenting on the intro. Keep going. Christopher Titus is 35 years old. Thank you. He celebrates his birthday. Doesn't matter what I am. I play 35. That's all that matters. Every three years. He looks fantastic, by the way. He could get in the hurricane and his hair would never move. Oh, wow. And I moisturize. He's got the stuff in his hair. You could actually run your fingers through his hair and your hands would bleed. (laughs) 
So his parents divorced when he was young. Why do you have to say they're divorced? <laughs> I mean, Christ, say they're married. I'm sorry. His father, Ken, who had several relationships during his upbringing that provided comedic material for his routines. Six divorces, not several relationships. We've all had several relationships. <laughs> I was trying to go the other way and not say the divorces. Keep going. Just keep going. I would just come and you continue on. A half of a baker's dozen minus one of divorces, <laughs> yes. while his mother's manic depression and schizophrenia and alcohol alcoholism also served as future source material. <laughs> Why sound like a heartless prick? His mother was mentally ill, had an alcoholic problem, and killed herself. And he uses that to mine the comic depth. <laughs> uh, I'm an evil human. Keep reading. Titus bounced between living with his grandparents, his father, and then ran away to live in his mother's garage for a short time. I was actually kidnapped by my mom and left at my grandparents. My dad had to kidnap me back. Keep going. In mining comic gold. <laughs> Again, from kidnapping and mental illness and shootings, Titus is mine comic gold. In 1986. Why you gotta mention years? <laughs> His mother killed her. I can't even do this. Shot and killed. His third husband, she killed him. He was the jerk I used to do. He was, he was, the guy was half O.J. Simpson and half O.J. Simpson. He's <laughs> just an evil dude. I know the guy who owns the Bronco. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. He mines comic gold for <laughs> He does, as we all do. From our tragedy. The tragedy is reading this intro. <laughs> Titus struggled with alcohol and drugs during adolescence until one day, while intoxicated, had a near death experience falling into a bonfire at a beach party. Yeah, it'd be he, a lot weirder if he was well, one day totally sober, he fell into a bonfire. <laughs> You're right. I got they had to clear that up. Titus considered this moment his epiphany and began to turn his life around and get into comedy. In 85, he began performing at open mic comedy clubs throughout San Francisco, and it wasn't long before Titus was tapped open for very popular singers, including Kenny Loggins and Michael Bolton. <laughs> Why you got to say Michael Bolton? I'm sorry. I can live with Loggins. We were told actually Bolton's comedy. I was actually told not to look him in the face. I was actually told actually Michael Bolton to not look him in the face. It wasn't art. I wasn't looking like I wasn't like, where's he at? I know it's, it's an industry standard. So I'm sure he's an amazing artist. He's incredible. And, and you know, when he sings other people's songs, go. <laughs> Do you know any comedians that are famous for doing other people's routines and people are happy about it? No, I know, but it's the only thing you can't do covers, you know, and it seems like that's the way it may go one day. You know, Mencia is still, his reputation still hangs around. I actually saw Mencia do someone else's joke in front of me one night, recently, in the last two years, and I called the guy the next day just to tell him. It was DL. He did, I saw him. I was in Vegas. I had to go to the, the Dirty at 1230 show. Why do you stir up the controversy? Why can't you just let it die? Because it's a fucking artist, because we're doing doing comedy here's the thing about comedy and this is why I have I have a I have a reputation in some circles as being a pain in the ass creating comedy out of nothing it, it's one of the few things where like my daughter's a singer and she's actually writing songs now and we need a band we know that so comedy's the only thing you come up out of nothing and then get on stage with nothing and create a world from nothing and that's fucking hard and the best guys that do it Jim Jeffries is one you know Louis C.K. the best guys that do it do it in a way that looks like they're making it up as they go it's so fucking hard and the guys that are great at it are are, are, are so good that you, you don't even know and that some douchebag thinks that it's okay to walk in and take someone else's art and get on stage and get paid for stealing someone it's theft flat out so uh, it bothers me when someone goes well you gotta talk shit because I saw the guy do it in front of me I was in Vegas we had a thing called the Dirty at 1230 uh, and it was one of those things where the club owner goes hey because uh, there's a headline at, this, at the South Point he goes hey you gonna do the, the midnight show and I went nah man I'm tired 
right, I got to go. And he goes, okay, so the midnight show, it's really 1230. So go over there. You didn't go over there at 1230. They'll put you on the list wherever you want to go. I said, no, I'm probably going to go to the room. And this, this is the hotel guy. And he goes, he goes, so you're going to do it though, right? And I realize it's Vegas. Oh, I'm doing the show. I At one point, I had said no four times. And I, oh, oh, I, oh, I'm doing the show. Yeah. He was very cool about it. So I go over there. Carlos, and, and again, another reason. I don't, look, life is too short to have filters. I think, I, I think I do need to develop my diplomacy, but life is too short to not call people on their bullshit. Me being included, by the way. And I'll have to hopefully call myself on it. Um, uh, so I, I walk over there and Carlos walks up to me and, he, and I go, hey, man. And I don't know Carlos from anybody. I don't know him. I'll just tell you what happened. And I go, hey, how's it going, man? And he, he's doing all right. What do you have to? I said, I said, how's everything going with the stealing thing? You know, that's what I just said to him. He goes, what? And I go, the stealing thing. He goes, oh, man, I didn't steal. I go, dude. I go, I sat and watched you do. Watched you do Cosby's bit. I watched you do it. I see. It was the bit where he did the football bit. Football bit where he slams the football down and says, hi, mom. Hi, mom. Yes. He does it. He goes, oh, that was arrogance. And, I, and I'm thinking, okay, good. Finally, someone had some insight maybe someone went to a meeting that's what i thought he goes he goes so it was we filmed it originally and then he goes we cut it out of the special release but when it came out on dvd they put it back in man he goes we're so arrogant to put it back in he didn't say it was wrong to do the to take cosby's bit flat out he said it was wrong to put it back in so i just kind of went okay whatever and I, I i go i go do my show and he gets up and does a show and i see him do this joke and i'm like huh that's funny and then i was driving home from vegas i'm not gonna tell you the joke i'm driving home from vegas and i'm listen to Comedy Central Radio or whatever it was on, on Raw Dog uh, and D.L. Hughley comes on and literally does the bit and I'm like and I know I got D.L.'s number I said D.L. I, I said is that your bit he goes yeah he, he's doing it I said I just saw Carlos do lesson. he goes thanks man clicked, you know, D.L.'s so cool thanks man so that's what happened I, do, I believe that anybody who who will take someone else's art or, or anything is just it's just it's fucked up it's just fucked it's fucked up it's fucked up. and comics and, the, and there's no organization that we can go to as comics except for us there's no place where we can go and go uh, I'd like to I'd like to speak to the barrister regarding this man stealing my material it doesn't happen we have to go to, we have to track it down and we need to really police it that's all I'm saying in music so many of the greatest songs in the world are sung over and over again by other people but in comedy if you were to go on stage and say listen I'd like to do this next homage to George Carlin you'd be assassinated as a comedian as music I can play music I, I, I can play guitar I've actually I'm producing my daughter's stuff just the, the demos to give to a real producer but I'm actually I can I, you can I, guitar playing is a, is a craft singing you can be trained in that to get people to laugh out loud and listen comic comics are delusional it's a mental illness to be a stand-up comedian you have to be mentally ill you have to actually walk into a room and believe that you are the smartest funniest most charismatic human being to a room full of strangers who don't know you that's how insane you have to be as a comic it's literally it's beyond trumpism it's actually a little beyond trump you have to believe that you're going to be by far the most charismatic badass human in the room uh please welcome christopher titus i'm gonna now run these people that's it meant that's serial killer mental illness and that's what you have to be as a comic and to and the people that are great at it, again louis Patton. there's guys that i look up to that i can't wait for their next thing um uh and and those guys are there it's it's fucking not only is it priceless but it's magic but people don't get that it's fucking magic sometimes i don't know why something's getting a laugh i'll write it it comes out of my brain i'll put it down and i'll be doing it and i, and I actually write it going there's no way this is gonna work and then i'll get on stage and for whatever reason the fourth time in you know if it's a hard th- concept to like arm the children was a hard concept 
Arm the children. Uh, we went through a thing where we're still going through it. It happened today. There's another shooting today at the airport in, in Hollywood, Florida. Um, I didn't. I didn't want to go after. I wrote a bit. That the gun thing has to be dealt with. So I wrote this bit called "Arm the Children" because they were they wanted to arm teachers and they wanted to arm. They, wanted, they kept saying that all the teachers should have guns and everybody in, in public place should have guns. So I, I thought it was so ridiculous. I wrote this bit called "Arm the Children," where I basically proved that by arming the children making children carry guns all the time we can fix every problem in society now I'm doing the bit and I get the audience to start chanting arm the children at one point I go give it to me arm the children and I do run through this whole bit where I prove that we can fix all society's ills if we can just simply arm the children and at the end I go give it to me one more time and I put my hand over my head and, I go, and they go arm the children and I keep my hand up like Hitler and I go do you see how this can get out of hand? Do you see how Hitler got started? And they all go, and the gun people were like, motherfucker, they were so mad. And the anti-gun people were like, finally, thank God, finally. So so you have to you have to do that. And so to make that bit funny, if someone stole that bit, that took a long time to make right. You know, music is music. Music is great. The best, you know, Nils Lofgren is a friend, one of the best musicians in the world. Beyond craft, he's an artist. You know, Springsteen. But comics, man, to come up with a concept that is so crazy Easy. And you can go, I can go through every comic that we, that I've listed, you know, Carl, to come uh, just just Carlin's bit about my stuff. There's a, there's another level beyond just putting four chords together and putting some lyrics down about love. There's something beyond it that 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 transcends that. And I hate fucking talking about because makes comedy. Let's make comedy not funny. Let's let Titus fucking ramble about fucking comedy. So you think sympathy for the devil is just four chords and somebody putting something together? Now now so I want to get my ass kicked. So yes, I think sympathy for the devil was tossed off in a, in a session because Keith Richards was hammered. No, of course there's all songs, but on the Radio, I was listening to U2. I, I drove home from my, uh, Northern California yesterday. It's like a seven-hour drive, and all I did was play U2. And U2 continues to... They, there's some bands that just transcend. They go to another level, but you have to be inspired to do that. But comics have to be inspired all the time. That being said, there's a thousand guys out there that can talk about their penises, and the audience will laugh. But the, I don't consider... I, I honestly don't consider those guys, with a few exceptions. Uh, David Tell. There's certain guys that... Are, whenever a comic guy, a young guy go, hey, watch my set, and I'll go, okay, I'll sit in the back watch a set and he, he talks about his, his blowjobs and, and anal raping his girlfriend and he'll get a stage and he'll go what do you think and I go well I said y- you're horrible <laughs> and they'll go what do you mean because you know I, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do what Dana Carvey said to me I asked Dana Carvey one time years ago I said watch my set and Dana Carvey's very and he said okay I'm going to watch your set he goes before you do this though here's what I want you to do I was like literally 19 or 21 at the time he goes I want you to, I want to ask him before I watch your set do you want to hear what I really think or do you want me to tell you you're good so you can continue on and I go no because I was raised with my dad my dad was just you're a fucking retard I got a B it's not an A I, mean, I, I'm used, I was used to the truth I said no give me the truth he said okay I'll never forget it I get off stage and he goes Dana taught me one of the most important things about performing live stand up comedy he said uh, he goes he goes number one be funny he, uh, and I said thank you and I go you bullshitting me he goes no you said you don't funny he goes number two you don't look at the audience he goes you could be a lot funnier but he, he goes yes I do he goes no you don't you look near the audience he goes you're looking at the back wall of the club the whole time I didn't see you look anybody in the face not once and he goes he goes let me tell you how to do this I want you to, I want you to pick one person 
and you do the setup right to their face and then you do the punchline to the room then you pick another person and do the next setup to their face punchline to the room and he goes what will happen is he says what happens is that person is all of a sudden your best friend the three people around him wish they were him so they want to be your best friend and he, he I'll never forget this Dana I, Dana did my benefit a couple years ago and I brought this up and he goes I don't remember saying that and I go I will never forget it and I've told comics across this country and he just and he goes also you're too goofy he goes you're too goofy he goes you're you're just a goofball on stage and that's Dana saying it he goes you a little more substance work on your writing and he was honest so I'm honest when a comic says what do you think and I'm honest but I will ask him do you want me to be honest or want me to tell you you're good I'm honest and I said you know unless you're Dave Attell funny with dirty Jim Norton funny unless you're Dave Attell funny where you're taking these crazy right turns that that aren't just offensive but they're surprising then, then I, go, but I go if you're as funny as Dave Attell go for dirty if you're that funny if you're not why are you wasting your fucking time there's 5,000 guys that are doing the same fucking dick joke why are you doing it one of my biggest pieces of advice to anybody is don't ask anybody to come see you when you're doing the right thing they will find you and chase you Leno said, uh, Leno years ago, this came through Kevin and Rooney. He said, um, Kevin Rooney, great stand up comedian, great writer. He said to me, he said, we were working together. This is when he was still doing stand up. And I was, again, I was just, I got to remember, I don't have, uh, Chris Hardwick said to me, he goes, You don't have a click. He goes, You don't hang out with the alternative guys. You don't hang with the older guys, you know, with the road dogs. And I said, I, because I, I was 19 when I started. I go, All the other guys were too old, and the new guys behind me were behind me. So I'm like this weird, like this, like there's, there was, there's no, Isn't there, uh, like one, person who started the same week as you. We had Kevin Pollock and Bobby Slate on one end and then we had well Jake Johansson and John Ross. Jake Johansson. So me and Jake know each other but I was also they were also four or five years older than I was. So I was and I was 19 and psychotic. Like I'm bad now but imagine me at 19. I was not I was like I was just out of control. Those guys those guys are great. Goldthwaite's uh, interesting thing. Goldthwaite came from Boston and and I was starting in San Francisco and he did a club called The Other Cafe. It was like it was like the window was the, the, the stage was up against the window in the streets so like it was this bizarre Goldthwait called it a, a people aquarium years ago this is like I remember this is in the 80s and people just walked by while you were on stage with your back and, and it, the crowds were always phenomenal willing to let you go and do what you want to do and Goldthwait they let me do a couple of those nights and I never I was I Goldthwait I don't know if he does it anymore but Goldthwait's a genius you know Goldthwait's one of those guys people go oh he just yells I go oh no he doesn't I go I go if Goldthwait doesn't have to do that voice I go look at his material you know his material he could get up as any stand up in the world do the exact same jokes and it would still be funny you know he wasn't the guy that he never got by on that yelling so one night uh, I'm backstage and I go talk to him I go thanks let me do the show and he's he was he's, he's still really young and he he goes oh no problem and he goes I gotta get ready and and this is when he used to put the shit in his hair and it would take him like 20 minutes and Goldthwait talk about an acting moment man Goldthwait transformed into that dude he got faster and faster later but at the beginning holy shit it took him like 20 and it was crazy to watch and he'd be you know, in, in, in the back room and it was it was amazing Goldthwait was a Goldthwait was a inspiration in a lot of ways not for what I do but just to just just to show you Goldthwait was great when he started because you could it showed you how far you could go I mean I started doing characters on stage in San Francisco and stuff I did this Russian guy who came to America and Reagan was president at the time and and and, and basically this Russian guy was just freaked out about America and, and why the Mormons had bought Playboy magazine he came to America just so he could buy Playboy because he can't get in it was just it was, anyway but a lot of those San Francisco guys were great just really inspiring and Joe was amazing that character he did Dexter yeah. holy shit Dexter Madison holy shit was that funny I have so many things to ask you, but I think the biggest thing I want to ask you about this comedy police thing. Do you think Carlos has been punished too much, too little, or exactly as he should have been punished? 
Well, I, you know, I think I think once South Park takes it on, once South Park decimates you, I think that's pretty much it. But that's literally like the death penalty. When the, South Park, I, I believe, is the moral compass of our country. I really do. I'm not kidding. I'm not. I, you think I'm joking, but I am not. You can watch South Park is so weirdly brilliant in the sense that they will take some but the queefing episode, which was basically kind of a dissertation on misogyny and how women don't have the same rights as men, which is it's, it's and it always like at one point you just for the dumb people who are never going to get that they're like yeah queefing woo for the smart people like holy shit how did they how did they offend me to this point and then take me to them I'm like I agree with you 100% they're brilliant so when they went after Carlos um, with that fish sticks uh, thing I, I remember I remember just nodding and go and I turned to my wife and I go he's fucked I go I guess South Park takes you on you're fucked you're just fucked <laughs> And I think that was I think that was it Punishment And, and, and had a guy Had he, had anybody been contrite about it And said you know I, I shouldn't do that I won't do it again But you know Up to the point When I called him on it In front of him And he said And he had the balls to go Yeah I was arrogant He wasn't arrogant Because he stole the bit He was arrogant Because they, 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 they put it on the DVD He It wasn't that he stole it Here's the guy's mindset Here's the psychopath's mindset And again he's a comic So I totally understand it he put it on the DVD and was mad that they were arrogant to do that and not that he stole the bit. And then he got up that night and did a fucking joke from DL. So it, so after all of that Rogan shit, after all the, like the clubs hate him, after South Park nationally, a comedy center went after him, the fucking guy still does it. So in your opinion, why do you think someone steals? Now, I just want to say this. Why does a millionaire steal if he wants to create new material all he has to do is bring in some writers for $500 here and $500 there right. and put some stuff together people don't realize it on the outside but the academy awards has 1725 writers i know comedians who make their living writing for comedians and nobody knows it there's guys that use help yeah i, I think i think guys don't I think there's an I think there's an arrogance in it. I don't need any help writing. I mean, I, I would I would I, that would. Uh... So if Carlos Mencia came out for ten years and was doing original, unique stuff that nobody could point to, right? He'd get everything back that he had. Why would he? do that again what's the point habit I think habit if you do it for so long it's just your habit and the thing about Carlos is that and here's the other side of Carlos by the way because I've trashed him and I'm sure this is going to get back to me one day because um, uh, you know that's what happens with my career I saw talk some shit next thing I know <laughs> next thing I know I'm, I'm working it doesn't matter the point is this Carlos uh, the thing about Carlos is I watched him that night when do it and he is a fucking amazing performer like I really got it watching him I was watching him going holy shit this guy is he's he's an, he's he's amazing like on stage what he does on stage amazing his attitude his passion what he brings to it the problem is he's using the passion for shit he didn't write in some cases now does he does he steal everything no but that's not the point you can't you, comedy's not you can't like Springsteen goes out and does 35 songs of his own then he does one cover that's okay you can't do 35 bits of your own as a comic and then do one cover of Louis C.K.'s bit and thinking you're still cool. There's some, there is no room in comedy for it, you know, because to get people, listen, listen, and this is, this is, like I hate talking about, you're making me not funny and I don't like it. <laughs> comedy is to, to elicit laughter from people. Laughter, you can't fake it. If you fake laughter, it basically causes a tumor on your soul. So to get people to really laugh in a room, to have it an, an, an honest, authentic reaction is priceless. It's fucking magic. Laughter is accidental. 
So for people who have mastered it to get on stage and make that happen to a room full of people is is fucking priceless. And people, it cures, it, it creates endorphins, which cures, which helps cure cancer, which changes your mood. You can have a, sh- I've had people so many times and go, dude, I had a shitty day. Thank you. Comics do something different, you know. And I believe, I seriously believe that. So. If that comic does that priceless piece and some other asshole steals it and does it to another audience, you could say, well, he's doing good work because he's making them laugh too. No. Come up with your own shit or get the fuck out. I, I, listen, I'm a DF student. I'm a dumb guy. The only thing that ever made me smart in life is comedy because I had to learn what I had to do to write it. Okay? So so I was a fuck up, total fuck up loser who had no, no possibility in life. Stand up comedy gave me the possibility. I have now done seven 90-minute specials that I'm writing my eighth right now. And I will tell you this. The pain. I'm writing this new one about it's going to be I'm running for president in 2017 because I figured because this guy ain't going to last that long. He's dropping a deuce. <laughs> he's dropping a deuce. He's already we have, he's not even there yet. He's already backed out on everything he said, which pisses me off. It makes me mad that all the, I didn't vote for him. But everybody who did, you know, what makes me really mad. Those people come to my shows. This guy's motherfucked him across the board already. All across the board. You're going to build a wall. You know, and we'll just build a wall. Let's really build it. But now we're going to pay for it. That was happened today. <laughs> we're going to pay for the wall. Mexico's not paying for it. We'll pay it. We'll send him a bill. Really? You're going to send him an invoice for the wall? <laughs> and I say, let's go for it. Build the wall. You know, then we'll, we'll win. We'll, at the Olympics, we'll get the golden handball every year. <laughs> we're, we're, now, we are going to be in the finals with Mexico every year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're very good at handball now. And, and, and much better at leaning. We, we lean well now. We have a wall to lean on looking cool. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I suppose you can climb over the wall. Yeah, yeah. We're also going to build giant corks for the tunnels, too. That's another thing. Giant wall, giant corks. That's next. I'm not going back to the stealing, but the day that George Bush first said that we're going to build a wall, there were three Latino comedians that night that did the same bit. Do you know what the joke was? Yes, yeah. Who are they going to get to build the wall? And the thing about that joke, that's not the joke. See, like when that happened, because to to me, calling someone stealing is a big deal. Big fucking deal. You better have some fucking evidence that joke wasn't the joke that put me over the top in fact I gave Carlos a pass on their joke because I heard seven guys at open mics do it when I saw the Cosby bit now I'm a Cosby I'm a huge Cosby fan pre-rapey Cosby I'm a I'm a huge not anymore uh I, when I saw the, the football bit, that's when I went, that's, you didn't just take a joke. You didn't come up with a joke that's possible. You took the whole fucking bit. Now, you started in San Francisco. Right. And do you think that you can get away with doing somebody's bit once or twice when you're huggable and lovable and you're an acting talent 
like Robin Williams? You know, uh, man, Robin's such a weird case because reality without reality, what a concept, I wouldn't even started stand up without because reality, what a concept. And I, it was the thing that opened me up that realized, oh, you can do voices and impressions and tell stories and do craziness. And that was the first time. I thought I could really be a stand-up comic. So he inspired you, but yes. in San Francisco, you're well aware of the stories where he would actually go up to comedians and write out a check and say, "I'm sorry." He bought some. He bought. He bought. I think he bought Carla Bo a house. Like there's some stuff he did. I remember. I remember one of the Oscars he hosted. Um, Steve Pearl I was talking to Stephen Pearl. It was very funny, crazy. And, the, and and Stephen Pearl said, that, "Yeah, yeah, he did. He did about 15 or something of my jokes on the Oscars." And then he wrote. He wrote. He wrote Steve a very large check, is what Steve said. He didn't tell me how much, but he said. So so here's the thing. Robin also was a fucking genius. At one point, someone called him on, hey, that's a bit about my dad. And Robin was like, fuck you. That's a bit about my dad. So, the, you know, I, I wrote that. So, But when you didn't, you know, I, I you know, yeah, I don't give Robin a pass. A lot of comics really, hey, I, I don't, but I, I mean, I do give Robin a pass on certain things because the other side of him, he was a fucking, he's a genius. And he was doing a stream of consciousness. Yeah, but that's also a bullshit excuse. So I can't be riffing like I just riffed and then, yeah, it's, it wasn't cool. But at least he, he, he didn't, at least his, at least he wasn't arrogant enough to go, yeah, I did it. And, you know, my arrogance was I did it on TV. You know, he, at least he went, yeah, fuck. And I wrote a guy a check. You know, the only, the only, I think the only thing, Talk about paying your dues. You, you take out a check and you write a guy a check for ten grand because you did something on, on Letterman. Okay, you know. And then the, that comic goes. That comic goes. Well, I can eat for three or four months now, and I got to write some new material. At least he bought the material. That at the end, now maybe it should have been purchased then do not do then purchase. That's different. Um, let's say he test drove the material, and then he walked in and signed the contract. Let's say that. But because he did that, because he did pay for it, I think Robin, I think Robin, I, I don't give him a pass for doing it originally, but at least he's made up for it. He cleaned it up. Carlos has never cleaned it up. So let's go way back. Tell me about where you grew up, your family, and what was your first inspiration to get into the entertainment business? Uh, I was a DF student, barely graduated high school. I, I My dad was a, a salesman, drove all around California, sold fiberglass equipment. Uh, I've been building cars since I was a little kid. Like, like when I was nine years old, other kids would go ride their bikes. My brother and I used to come home and we had to restore this Triumph TR3. So we're like, we're like nine, ten years old and we would get out this paint stripper and strip the car. We'd just, we were restoring it. Um, and it would dissolve everything. It, you know, dissolve, it would dissolve the paint and part of my little sister, by the way. But she loved, <laughs> she loved riding in that car <laughs> what was left of her uh, um, so so I, I was raised very blue collar very much in a and a, 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 my dad was a crazy womanizer crazy drinker when did you first notice what age that your dad might be having extramarital affairs what might be I mean it was like he would just talk about it in front of you or your mom well, my well, my mom. Okay, well, okay. So my mom. I was raised, but my mom was mentally ill. I was I was conceived during revenge sex. That happened. So here's uh, so so basically, my mom and dad were together. My dad was in the National Guard. My dad fought in the Watts riots, <laughs> which 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 he used to tell crazy stories about the three days, the three days of my dad's military service. Uh, he was stationed in at Fort uh, Fort Fort Ord. Is that up, Fort Ord is up north? Yeah. So he's got it. He's on maneuvers. He's in the army for a couple months. 
friends, can't get a hold of my mom, finally gets gets leave, goes to their apartment, it's empty, gone. Not only did she leave him, she didn't leave a note, she didn't say anything. Now, my mom was mentally ill. This is before children. Yes. So, my dad just says, all right, fuck it, and he just goes on with his life. He didn't do anything, you know? They were married, I think he filed for divorce, and he couldn't find her. He couldn't, didn't know where she was. Um, about three months after that, she calls him and says, come over, I want to talk to you. He's over, he's mad, he doesn't know what has happened in his life. He gets there. Uh, mom was uh, at this point. Mom, mom was heavy first, but then she one summer she lost like forty five pounds and was actually a beauty queen. She was actually Miss Alameda County, and uh, and my dad went over. And my dad, uh, as as most men, you know, it doesn't matter what a woman does to us when she gets naked, it, it, it all goes out the window. And they had sex while they're having sex. Uh, the guy my mom was seeing at this point it was a guy named uh, it was a writer for the Alameda paper, one of the papers. It was a reporter. He's banging on the door because because he knows that you know he, Nita what's going on and my dad starts my dad goes and goes I just start moaning oh give it yeah my dad's yelling like he's fucking my mom yelling so this guy can hear it as he walks out he goes, he goes I just zipped up my pants and said it's all yours now and he walked out and the guy was in front of the crying because my mom my mom was pretty my mom mentally ill people my mom was brilliant she had a 185 IQ that's where it stops they tested her at 185 she spoke four languages she was a concert pianist um, uh, she was amazing and insane as shit. Brilliance can be a problem. I'm just dumb enough <laughs> to not be psychotic. And I'll, I'll, there are people that would argue that, but I haven't killed anybody and I haven't done time so far. <laughs> but I've thought about it. So, so basically, my dad walks out. Well, he so he, he he screws my mom one more time and thinks he's done. It was good. It was for him. It was a period on the way done. They were. He, my dad told me this. He goes, "We were done. I was over. I was this crazy bitch." So she calls him like th- like a month and a half later and says, I'm pregnant. And he's like, good, tell him. Her boyfriend, she said, no, it's yours. And uh, so my dad did the right thing. How do you know it was him and not the other guy? Here's a funny story. So my dad says, my dad says, he goes, I swear to God, it wasn't my kid. He goes, I knew you weren't my kid. My mom, I, I'm telling you, by the way, this is my life. He goes, he goes, here's how I knew you're my kid. We go to the hospital. She, mom has a baby. He goes, I, I know it's not my kid. I'm waiting for this kid to come out, you know, n- not being and born. And my dad goes, that's not my kid. My grandmother went home while they were still in the hospital, went home, got baby pictures of my dad, came back and went, he's your fucking kid. Like everything. It was literally my dad and I, even to this day, even this little dot, genetics are weird. I have this little weird like mole on my forehead, uh-huh. exact same place as my dad's. I'm his kid. But up till, up till I was born and grandma came and showed him the pictures, I was not his kid. You know? And there's many times he wished I wasn't his kid later on. There's many times, you know, but he, the proof is there. The proof is there. You know, it was, it was, there's no way I could look exactly like my father and not be his. Do you think if your mom had the proper doctors and medication that she would have lived? She wouldn't take it. She had that. She had all of that. She, she had that. She just wouldn't take it. She said to me once, uh, my dad said, she said this to my dad. She didn't say this to me. She said to my, my dad said, why won't you take your medication? And my mom looked at my father and said, because you don't know how high my highs are and you'll never know how low my lows are. So she liked the ride. Mom liked the ride and said that flat out to my dad, which is a crazy, scary, bone-chilling insight moment from mom where you're like, holy shit. <laughs> like you knew, like you, you, you were so smart and aware, you were aware that you liked the ride. Like we, one time mom, this is a weird story. I never talked about this on stage. I can't really. My sister Kirsten, um, and I, I, my mom committed suicide, so did my sister Kirsten. Um, 
uh, my sister Shannon though is is saving people in in Darfur. It's crazy. My other sister is insane. But my my mom showed up one day out of the blue to my graduation uh, when I was graduating high school, barely graduating. I had to go back. I had to go back after I graduated to do th- uh, three units of summer school before they actually gave me my diploma. They let me participate in graduation ceremonies, but I was so stupid. They were like, hey, we're not gonna, they gave me a blank piece of paper on stage and I had to go back for summer school to graduate. After I graduated, I had to go back to actually graduate. So my mom shows up for my graduation, shows up and she's, she shows up to my graduation wearing a, a green army jacket, a long green army jacket and white vinyl go go boots to my graduation and and my dad was like she still looks good dad are you (laughs) she had brought my sister kirsten who was little at the time and said hey i need to go i i have some friends i want to meet can i leave my sister can i leave my daughter with my uncle left my, my my sister kirsten with my uncle and disappeared they found her two weeks later in a doorway in san francisco covered in her own menstrual blood two weeks later so she would just go off the rails mom it wasn't like someone that slowly kind of lost it mom would just stop her medication and then go off the rails and she knew it and she knew it and, and the thing is the problem with those medications is that well, you know again because I, I have mental illness in my family I'm aware of those medications so and I don't take any I won't take them uh, I don't need them well again all this is disputed uh they kill all empathy. The reason that you can maintain is because it kills your joy and it kills your sadness. So that's why if there's, there's, that's why all these killings, most of these killings have been done by these shootings have been done by people that are on these medications because they've lost their ability to feel. They're just in the middle somewhere and they don't have any, they don't have joy and they don't have sadness. So they're like, fuck it, I'm going to shoot some people. Wee! And, and yeah. And there's a, there's a, there was a website called uh, uh, SSRIstories.com. You can go check it out. There's like 5,000 shootings are done specifically by people on these SSRI. So I used to go visit mom as a little kid. They, they, they'd take me to visit her in mental hospitals. Your dad is a salesman. He has to travel. Your mom is in some doorway somewhere. Who's taking care of the three of you? Well, well, uh, Kirsten uh, was with my uncle. She wasn't. She was from my mom's second marriage. So she was. She was. My dad wouldn't take care of her. And my sister Shannon lived with her mom, which is my dad's second marriage. So Shannon was with her mom, who was a nurse and was pretty responsible. So you're the only child from both your mom yeah. and your dad. And I was a latchkey kid, man. I was from the time I was nine years old. My school happened to be, it was within a block. So I had a key on a shoestring, which is, you know, an incredible amount of uh, criminal protection. Like no one was ever going to break into the house. I had a, I had a, I have a shoestring that is unbreakable and it's, <laughs> it's like a superhero amulet. Uh, and I was a latchkey kid from the time I was nine, nine years old. And I would just go home after school and sit in the house and do what I did, do my homework. Actually, I take that back and not do my homework and then watch TV till dad got home. And I, and I did that. And then I was, I like, my dad was leaving me in the house by myself at 14 years old. You know, he just let me, when he'd go on to, out of town to do business, I would stay with babysitters for a while. But then once I was 14, I just stayed home by myself for two days. And he would, you better go to school in the morning, goddammit. That's what he would say. And he was married six times. Yep. Five times in the sixth one, he, th- this one of them, he just lived with for 10 years. And did any of them provide any stability for you? Two, three, and five. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I learned. I learned from those women. Yes. 
so as you're a teenager, do you think to yourself, there's no way my mother is going to live? That's that's where that joke uh, in Titus, the first episode of Titus we did, you know, I pitched an episode called Dad is Dead, where basically we thought my dad was dead for three days because he had a mild heart attack. This true story, had a mild heart attack. And my brother called me and said, uh, hey, uh, dad's dead. And I'm like, oh my God, because my dad had a bunch of heart attacks. And he goes, yeah, he's been in his, he goes, he's been in his room for three days and I, and, I, and I think he's dead. And I go, what do you mean you think he's dead? He goes, I'm not going in there. What if I wake him up and he's pissed <laughs> this true story this really happened so I called my aunt who's a nurse and she went over and saw that's where that episode came from but the joke and there's a joke in in, in, the, in the first episode of Titus the pilot called Dad is Dead where um, they go you know dad's dead and then and then my brother goes well, who won the pool <laughs> and so when mom when we found out mom I, I had cut mom off out of my life for about 14 years because just whenever mom was around crazy happened and I made a decision as a teenager because you know like I don't I, I'm, I'm, it's, at one point when I was 14 years old we were living in a garage I mean, we were, I, I, I went to visit my dad. I, I ran away when I was 12. I literally, at 12 years old, I left the bus stop. I went to the freeway. I hitchhiked to San Jose Airport with this dude who kept 12. At 12. I'm on the freeway. I hitchhiked. It's the first day of my eighth grade year. I hitchhiked because my dad had beat the shit out of me the night before. And I said, I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. Um, so uh, my dad and I, my dad was always hard on us. You know, it's weird, man. It, it makes me so uncomfortable to say, People go, you were abused as a kid. I'm like, ah, you know, you know, my dad, without my dad raising, it really makes me uncomfortable to say that because, you know, my dad, I've, I've just come to the three religions. My dad was an alcoholic. He was a fucking, he was an alcoholic. And, and I used to kind of give him some freedom on that, but he was, he couldn't not drink. He's at noon or two o'clock. In fact, on his drive home, he'd start cranking down beers from work. So ever since you can remember, he hit you. You know, it wasn't like, uh, no, I wouldn't say that because we also had great times. He took us water skiing. He taught me how to, you know, see, I mean, he, he was, I made sure the kids had their thing. We got in trouble for it all the time but we got in I mean so I'm 12 anyway he says something about my mom I say something back he picked me up my dad was a big dude picked me up by one hand by by both of my grabbed both of my ankles picked me up and just wailed on me and so the next morning I said fuck it I'm leaving and um I go hitchhike to the airport. I move to my mom's house. Uh, I live there for two years. She doesn't make me go. I get bronchitis. So I, the Munchausen thing had kind of happened because I would say I was sick and my mom would just say, okay, stay home. So I literally, I missed, I actually missed at one point during my sixth, seventh grade year, I missed, I don't know, 90 days of school. <laughs> no, sorry, take that like 30 days of school straight in a row because I had bronchitis. Um, so a DF student, and thank God for California public school system because they just kept moving you along. I, the joke I do is I didn't graduate. I was let go. <laughs> they just went, thank you, you're done here. Um, they, they move, just kept moving to the system. So the next summer I go to my dad's. The next summer I go to my dad's. I'm 13 or 14. I'm 14 now. And I, I'm spending three weeks with my dad. He never let go that I ran away. Never let it go. Like, hey, dad, can you pass the salt? Yeah, why don't you fucking run away and get some salt like he would never he never let it go like every sentence so uh now i was with my dad for i think it's three weeks with my dad for over the summer and then i went back to my mom's and when i get to my mom's house we get out of the we walk out of the burbank airport which is the best airport in the world because it looks like it's from the 40s still i get out i get out of the car we we there's there's no there's no car there's no car there she go and we go to the bus stop and I'm like, what happened to the car? She goes, I had to sell the car. And I said, what? And, and, and like, like, I don't know any of this is going on. We get in a bus. We take three buses. We end up at this house. At, and oh, we're at a bus stop in. Uh, we're at a bus stop right by where the IKEA is now in Burbank. And I go, what are we doing? She goes, well, we got evicted. We got evicted when I live with my mom. We got evicted in two years. We got evicted three times. It's pretty bad when, as a kid, you know the sheriff's name. How's it going, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty bad. So, uh, so we go to, we, we go to this house and I go, so this, we moved here. Great. And she goes, well, this is a friend of mine's house. We live in the garage and we, and all our stuff was in the garage and it was a cot for me. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm 14 now. Uh, I'm already going through puberty. I don't think, I don't think dating women's going to be a possibility. Uh, you know, let's go to my house. Would you have a key? No, I have a garage door opener. That's my mom, and that's the car. You know, I didn't want, and I didn't want to grow up like that. So I moved back to my dad's house. Uh, I called my dad, and I said, "We're living in a garage." And he said, "Good, get your ass here, move back there." And then, literally, for the next four years of my life, no matter what I said, complained about it was move back to your fucking mom's. Go ahead, live in a garage. So he had that over me. When I was about 15, 16, we started getting in pretty much random, but but consistent fistfights, like brawling. And when I, when I finally when I was seventeen, it got to a point where we were we were duking. It, we were duking it in the kitchen, literally brawling, and my stepmom screaming, and chairs are breaking. And I was 17. I've been working out, and I, and I grabbed my dad, and I picked him up off the ground, and I sit like a baby. I was so adrenaline and pumped up because he's a big dude, and I set him on the kitchen counter. And, and at that point, the look in his eyes changed, and he went, "All right, fuck it, knock it off. Hey, put me down. Fuck it, damn." Ah. And they're like, "We're done. This is bullshit." And then. Uh, um, and in that time, I'd fall into a bonfire from drinking too much. And so he left that weekend and said, uh, I said, we're going skiing. You can fuck off. So that weekend, I called my aunt and I said, uh, I need to move out because we're going to kill each other. I said, I want to kill him now. I said, I actually want to kill him. And she said, okay. Uh, and I was crying at the time. And so I moved to my aunt. And thank God for my aunt because without her, I never would have done stand. My aunt Kathy, who's like literally, she's Gandhi. I mean, she's of our family. She's the sweetest human being in the planet. Her husband as an ex-Navy SEAL, UDT. He's an old guy who was when it was underwater demolition. So you have this, you have this, my dad who, who's a good guy. My dad was back to his friends and loyal, but he was an alcoholic and, and, and he thought his kids needed to be, have their asses beat to be good people. And so they had that. And then, and I moved, and I moved with my aunt who was just like the most tolerant person. And I still probably owe her money for phone bills. I ran up and stuff. And, uh, and I would stand in my garage and start doing stand. I, I started, I decided to be a stand up. What was the inspiration? I'd been talking about it for a long time, and what finally happened was a friend of my dad's, a girl he dated, the San Francisco Comedy Competition was happening, and I was this when I was fourteen at the time. San Francisco Comedy Competition was always one of the biggest yeah. competitions in the world, and very well respected. They picked forty comedians and narrowed it down to one. Yeah, and, uh, it was a legendary for a long time. So here's what happened. I, I uh, Danielle, it was this woman named Danielle, had, was dating this guy who was in the competition and called my dad and said, because she, she, it's so funny, people around my dad knew I wanted to do comedy and I told my dad, but he never just, he, ah, it's like, I think it's, I think parents hear you say, I want to do comedy and they hear like, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a cowboy. That's what they hear. They don't really hear you're really going to do it. So when I was 14, they took me to the steakhouse to watch one of the, one of the, we they're down to 20, uh, 29, and I got to see Michael Winslow and Dana Carvey and Michael Davis and uh, A. Whitney Brown and um, like the list is endless of who was on that show and I sat there as this 14 year old kid and I was like okay I'm in, I'm in a steakhouse okay this is not like some crazy theater these guys are just some of them are good some of them suck and that was the night I said I'm gonna do this and I didn't write comedy till I moved out and and I was there was, a, there was a station called The Quake with Alex Bennett and they had comics on all the time Alex Bennett was the most powerful guy in comedy radio in the country back then oh yeah oh yeah so what happened was I just started I started writing I wrote five minutes of material and oh sorry I thought it was 15 minutes it turned out to be five I went and I had this big 
big boom box with it. it had a microphone that was attached it had an antenna on one side and this big giant microphone and I would stand in my aunt's garage uh, I wrote the material and I and I rehearsed I just rehearsed it I will say I say this I took my brother to an open mic I went to open mic at, at the punchline in San Francisco and I, I I just went there to watch and I watched and like half the guys were just I was like wow those guys are funny and half the guys were horrible they were just horrible and I was like well I'm already funnier than this you know again the arrogance and narcissism and crazy psychoticness of a comic and so I went home and I wrote I wrote what I thought was 15 and I practiced it for two hours a night because I knew the second I hit the stage I was going to black out and that's exactly what happened I walked on stage and I got hi how you doing and I don't remember anything and I ended with this bit where the oh my god a fucking horror show uh, a, a bit about Reagan to we are the champions by Queen that was my closer at the time and uh, and I, I the audience went nuts and and I think God gives you or the universe gives you that first one and then you then I tanked for the next four or five shows hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I'm not going to let you go on this, even though you want me to let you go. You have to at least tell me what happened the day you found out about your mom. And after that happened to your mom, could you see the signs in your sister? And did you try to save her before? Yes. So mom, I was living in, I was, I moved to LA in 88. I moved to LA. I was working, I was busting my ass. And the thing is I had the only way to make money was to go on the road. Cause I was you know, on the road. And that's when Kevin Rooney told me nobody, uh, Kevin Rooney said, Leno said, no one gets funny in LA. That's we got to get back to that. No one gets funny in LA. You end up doing the same seven minutes for four years. They get funny in New York though. Yeah. True, because you have to. Yeah, there's a difference. Although all the alternative guys, that whole scene started, and everybody, you weren't. If you did the same thing more than three times, people, you. I think that was a really good thing for LA. Uh, that was before that. So uh, uh, my mom, I was living in an apartment uh, here in West Hollywood, and uh, I get a phone call, and my dad says, uh, "Hey," and I didn't talk to my mom in I don't know nine years 14 years something like that and the last time I talked to her was at my dad's house she called and she was hammered and she just said see hey you doing? Hey, I'm living in Missouri now I'm working at a chicken plucking factory and I was like okay mom and it was, it was one of those ones you actually I, if I had known she was on the phone I wouldn't have picked it up but I, I accidentally picked it up and she goes I just bought a 1956-33 what and, and I'm like okay mom and she goes so are you doing good I heard you're doing comedy she was fucking hammered and it was and, and it was uh, it was like 10 o'clock on the west coast 
So she was hammered and it wasn't even noon yet. And I, I didn't ever talk to her after that. My dad calls me. I'm living here and it's like, I don't know, 90, maybe 91. And I, he says, he says, hey, I got to tell you something. Your mom, uh, your mom's dead. She killed herself. And I, and I actually literally... I'd already written her off. I have this weird, again, psychotic. I have a switch. Like if you if you fuck up my life too much, cl- click and it's over. Like we're not. And I just went okay. And then I go stop. And I go I go what? And he goes you're not reacting. I go I haven't seen her in 14 years. I go I, we we you know. And I said who won the pool, Dad? We knew this was coming. And that's where that joke came from. And he goes stop. And I said Dad, I'm fine with it. Uh, and and he goes he goes I don't like the way you're acting to this. And I go well, how do you want me to react to it? I haven't seen her in 14 years. And we kind of got to start a little argument with me, and my dad. And I hung up the phone and I didn't react to it. I was like yeah, mom killed herself. And I moved on and my she was my girlfriend at the time before she was my wife and now she's my ex-wife uh, she was like everyone was freaked out that I didn't react people were literally people if someone dies fake cry because you will get a have a lot easier life because if you don't if you don't react to someone close in your life dying all of a sudden everybody thinks you're psychotic um and what happened was I was on a plane like three months later and I was reading a Newsweek article and I wrote this was in Titus. I was reading Newsweek and it talked about mental illness. It said mental, it said mental, the article saw mental illness, genetic question mark. And I'm like, oh shit. And I started reading this article and it was just funny to me that uh, I was living in fear of being mentally ill and all of a sudden I started thinking about it. And they were serving turkey that day on the plane and, and I smelled the turkey. My mom was this amazing cook and I, it, dude, it was one, I was in the middle of a flight, 30,000 feet in the air and I start sobbing uncontrollably I'm shaking and people are freaking out so I got up and went to the bathroom and I stayed in the bathroom for about 45 minutes just crying and and so I basically got over my mom's death or dealt with my mom's death in the bathroom of a Delta flight it was just literally the dam just broken it was it was horrifying honestly because it totally it was a kind of sobbing where you're out of control where you can't stop it you're, you're you can and I'm not and I'm not that I, you know I'm I can handle life and, and I just lost it on the plane and the stewards was beating on the door it was that was a bad day and a good day because at the end I was like I got it I'm good and then she cried because you called her a steward <laughs> I know I call her air waitress <laughs> so and I promise I'll get off this no you won't you're never letting this go did someone call you and say Titus needs to get this out can you get look we can't work with him anymore get him can you have a breakthrough with Titus Barry you sit him down he trusts you <laughs> go ahead so you ask me you're not gonna let me go so obviously you get off the flight and probably in your mind your crusade is I've got to save my sister now yeah Kirsten well Kirsten didn't have a chance my dad said that about Kirsten Kirsten wasn't his it was from my mom from my mom's second marriage he, that guy wasn't a good dude at all so my mom was taking her around and, and, uh, and but mom was living this nightmare life Kirsten was there when my mom shot and killed her husband I mean when I asked Kirsten what this is fuck man you know what's weird is that I've written comedy about these things but when you ask me to really talk about them it, it's, it's and as I'm getting older and you start to realize what that situation was my mom had moved to Idaho with this dude this, this is how this is how bad Kirsten had it my, my sister took her own life they moved to Idaho my mom had married this guy he, he, he's an oil rig worker and that joke I did he was half OJ Simpson half OJ Simpson and how old was she then Kirsten was seven six or seven uh, maybe eight Thanksgiving dinner one night uh, Thanksgiving dinner my mom put the turkey down 15 minutes late and this guy was a raging alcoholic mom was mom attracted these guys you know I, as I said in my act she would move into a town and she was kind of good looking and she would attract the alpha loser she'd always say like the, the, so this guy 
Thanksgiving dinner hit the table 15 minutes late. He got pissed. He threw the turkey across the room. This is what my sister told me. Threw the turkey across the room. Then mom got pissed and she countered uh, with it. She took a boiling pot of potatoes and just threw it on him. Um, and uh, and I said, and, and by the way, which is totally accurate. I read that in the domestic violence desk reference. That's the response. And then this guy beat the shit out of my mom, like where he actually literally crushed her face in. So yeah, I've talked about these stories. Like we did comedy about this, which is weird because as I'm talking about it now, it doesn't seem as funny. <laughs> so what happens is, is that she's there, the guy's drinking, mom goes upstairs uh, and gets his gun, came down and shot him three times, just kept putting bullets in him in front of my sisters in the room, you know, and uh, and so, so what happens is Kirsten goes, we got to call an ambulance and you call in and my mom said, no, wait, 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 stop. And my mom waited to the dude to die to let him bleed out. And then she called the ambulance because she didn't want him to live. And the weirdest thing is because she was so beat up. Uh, and Kirsten told me this story. This is another story about the dog. Like, the guy didn't like Kirsten's dog. Here's how bad Kirsten had it. Like, you can say what you want about my dad. You can say what you want about my life. But my dad had a, at least it was a roof over my head all the time, and there wasn't someone in the you know. Kirsten had no shot. So what happens is, is that... Um, is that she had a dog, this is another side story. She had a dog that the guy didn't like, so the dog just disappeared one day. And then Kristen was like, where's my dog? And mom said, oh, he ran away. And two nights later, the dog showed up, um, stabbed repeatedly. My mom had, didn't, my mom had kind of killed and buried the dog, and the dog had survived and was, he made it back to the house. Shit is fucked up, isn't it? So, <laughs> you know what's weird is I grew up in a different situation. This was my daily life. This was all the time. So when people go, "How do you talk about this?" I go, "This is just what happened. I hitchhiked when I was twelve. You know, I ran away, did this, and I, and and hopefully uh, people understand when they say in a meeting with me, go, well, he's kind of nuts, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm good. I handled it. So Kirsten, so basically the guy bleeds out. The guy had beaten my mom so bad that when they went to trial, um, not only did they acquit her, but she got the guy. He got a hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy. My mom got the money, you know. And then Kirsten, some Kirsten moved to Florida, and Kirsten. Now you know you grew up like that. Like I, I did a thing called the Landmark Forum. I've dealt with a lot of my stuff. I did the forum too. Yeah, it really helps me a lot deal with it, you know, because it's all all these stories are horrifying. For those of you who don't know, the Landmark Forum is sort of an offshoot of Est in the seventies. It actually was this. They just changed the name. It's these people that are trained. Landmark Forum these are trained seven to eleven years, and without it, basically all that stuff in your life that holds you back, you clear it. Now, if you've heard these stories so far, you would say, "Holy shit! You should I, literally." I have so much evidence that I should be homeless or in prison right now instead of going around just ranting on stage to audiences. There's so much evidence that I should not be where I'm at. I should not have had my own television show. I got a Writers Guild nomination for an episode I wrote. I'm not, there's, and with, no, with, with DF Student, there, the, without the forum, none of this would have happened. What was your first story that you built, that you created evidence for, that they tore down? Well, the big one was my dad hates me. My dad, my dad, my father hates me and he's always hated me. And they said to me, and so I tell them the story of my dad, he beat me, beat me, we was getting fist fights, he's horrible, he always called me a loser. And the forum leader goes, uh, Okay, got it. So did he did he did he kick you out of the house? No. Did he did he uh, did he make sure that uh, did he ever give you any attention? I go. He was on my ass all the time. And they go. Someone who loves you, someone who doesn't love you, doesn't do that. Someone who doesn't love you doesn't give a shit about you. You're just out of their life. Someone that loves you is up your ass every day, making sure you turn out to be a good human being. And it was weird. It wasn't that. It, this went on for a while. They let you do it. At one moment, I had this epiphany about my dad. Like he, that's all because his dad was like that. That's all he knew how to do. And once I 
got that, I was like, and I called my dad from the forum and I'm like, dad, I get it. I get that you love me this whole time. Here's the, you, they make you call. I'm like, dad, you love me and I get it. I get that you were up my ass every minute because you love me more than anything. And he goes, where the fuck are you? <laughs> and, I, and I go, I'm at the forum. They told me, get out of there right now. What are they doing to you? I go, no, dad, I'm fine. I get who you are now. Go, Jesus Christ, what the, <laughs> he's, he's yelling at me on the phone. I'm like, no. And I started laughing because I realized he was just being him. Also at the forum, sometimes you get done at midnight and you have to make the calls at yeah. midnight and you're calling people, waking them up. And you sound drunk. You sound drunk. I love you. I love you, man. You're the best thing ever happened. What time is it? I don't know. I got to tell you. But you're not drunk. You're just high on like insight. So anyway, I would go work. She lived in Florida. I would go. She's a great poet. She liked these, these poems that were so deep and everything. And she tried really hard. And I got her in the forum. She did the forum. But she also had the, the mom thing. And, and uh, we had some, we, she stayed at Camelot with Christmas with us one year and just was just like kind of out of her mind. And we had an argument. And, and But anyway, so I would go to Florida and hang out with her. And how are you doing? She took the forum. She was kind of living a decent life. And um, and then we had her and I had a falling out uh, over, over Christmas one year. And uh, and I thought she's living her life. She's fine. And and she was with this guy. Man, she's it's so weird how don't people don't react to as a 50 year old man. Please don't react to assholes that do you think you're going to ruin your life. There's 3.5 billion men and 3.5 billion women. You'll find somebody else. Just move the fuck on, you know, um, and fuck all of them. Either way, just move on. You don't let someone ruin your life. So she had this boyfriend that she was actually dating and uh and they were they've been together for a couple years but they would they would be together for five weeks and then they would break up and then they'd be together for three days they'd break up so then uh, hurricane not katrina it was hugo or some one of the hurricanes had come in in florida and in the middle of that night he had broken up with her or whatever he was a fireman or emt worker and she went to his house she went to his bedroom and uh, they just broken up and found his handgun sat at the end of his bed in the middle of the bed and blew her brains over the headboard and there's just, there's an epilogue to this story and you know she didn't have a shot man she was drug around with my mom she was left at people's houses the poor kid didn't have a shot she's never had a shot and you know and it's 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 the only thing i can't i haven't talked about on stage and i probably won't because there's no you know mom's crazy was aggressive and her crazy Kirsten just kind of got got dealt a shit hand and had to live with it at least with my dad I had a place you know I was anchored somewhere you know or chained like a Rottweiler whatever you want to call it but I was I had something backing me up you know at the end of the day my dad would fuck with me but if anybody else fucked with me my dad was like uh go punch those guys <laughs> I got you don't worry about it. I'll, I'll hit his dad if he is so here's what happened so Kirsten kills herself um, and then I'm back I go to, got back to Florida and I was the Hollywood Florida Club um, was where I was and I was there and, and my buddy Tommy's with me at the time and her boyfriend shows up at the gig like it's the weirdest thing ever he shows up at the gig and and so I have to show you he's gonna talk to you and he's got a buddy on my and we sit down and he goes you know your sister was really upset with you and, and I go what and, and he, go, he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, you didn't talk to her. So she was really upset. And, and you know, and, and what happened, you know, had to do with, you know, and I, and I stopped them. I go, are you fucking kidding me? I said, and he goes, are, are you telling me that because my sister and I were in an argument that she killed herself? He goes, well, what I'm saying is, and I said, get up. And he goes, well, I go, get the fuck up right now. And I'm going to, I'm fighting this guy. I'm going to beat his ass. Because I hadn't dealt with my sister either. And my buddy Tommy stands there and he grabs me and his buddy grabs him. And we just end up screaming at each other in the, in the, in the, in the parking lot of, uh, of this club. You know, it's pretty ballsy though, isn't it? She used your gun, asshole, and sat at the end of your bed and blew her brains over your headboard. My fault? Okay. Anyway, people are just, I guess, you know. Wow, why? 
Why are you making me tell these fucking stories, man? Sorry, I'm so sorry. And now this has some insight to the industry with Christopher Titus. Yeah, well, yeah this is all used for testimony later on when I snap. This is the shit that will play on CNN and MSNBC after I kill those people. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.